When do you wear a hat? When don't you wear a hat? A three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, you never see them without a hat in Helsinki. There must, there's like this <laughs> secret code that all parents seem to understand that everyone should always wear a hat. It, it just, you run into these things that trip you up and you think, what, what happened? In 2008, Professor Andrew Nestingen went on sabbatical to Finland with his pregnant wife and two-year-old daughter. It wasn't his first trip to Finland, but it was his first trip as a father. He often felt culture shock as a parent, and each time he took his daughter out to daycare or to playdates, he encountered a culture of parenting in Finland that was completely different to the one he knew in America. Another really good one is uh, sleeping outside. You know, everyone has a baby carriage for infants or up to like, you know, 18 months or whatever. Um, And they're really nice baby carriages, right? They're very, very well made and, and comfortable. They're not cheap. Um, and everyone uses them. In Helsinki, if you have a baby carriage, you go on the bus or use public transportation, it's free if you're pushing the carriage. Um, and so there's this sort of inclusive attitude toward children and their, their equipment and so forth. And so infants at home, two hours in the afternoon with their afternoon nap or longer, they push them out on the balcony, even no matter how cold it is, right? You're just out there on the balcony, get that fresh air. And evidently, like in the 1930s, there was a f- these Finnish doctors that did their research and came to the conclusion that it was very important for kids to have fresh air. And so that became like they, they said that in the, the midwives and then the whole midwife clinic system that is responsible for both prenatal and postnatal care. So parents were getting this message, right? And it's like totally permeates the culture. Like everyone knows this is what you're supposed to do. And it's not just like a preference. It's medical instructions about how to... Give your child a nap, and so that made me think about the fa- <laughs> the fashion stuff and many other things that I've observed. That there's these, you know, best practices of child rearing that everyone adheres to and aligns with, that are about doing it a certain way. And I, I think that that to me was just so different from, you know, what I knew about American culture, where there's just so many different attitudes, and you know, it, it was just very striking to me that that whatever the practices are, we have like. To, it seems like in the United States, there's so much debate and different, and a lack of tradition and, 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 and sort of trend following, like this is the way to do it now. No, 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 you know, swaddle yeah. the baby, don't swaddle the baby, all these different things that, that, um, that, that are continually shifting. Um, and I, I, you know, it's not an area that I knew that much about, but I became, I just thought it was really interesting to see the way that culture and institutional practice figure in the way that people live their everyday lives. Welcome to Crossing North, a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya Connors. Visiting lecturer of Danish, Christian Nesby and I sat down with Professor Andrew Nestingen to discuss Nordic approaches to parenting and schooling. Finnish schools are often considered to be the best in the world, and today their educational policies are the subject of international study and admiration. But a country's educational policies can't be separated from the culture that instituted them. Andy is an expert on Finnish culture. He is also an expert on Scandinavian crime fiction. So a warning to our listeners— Our discussion touches on violent crimes against children, 
as part of a larger discussion on Nordic mindsets about children. Christian Nesbu starts us out. Maybe I can say that um, all through my childhood, I was put outside for afternoon naps, like two, two hours in the afternoon. Come rain or shine, right? Or frost. You know, you just sleep outside. And, and it's, there's this, when you walk around in the Scandinavian countries, you see the baby strollers outside, right? You see them outside of houses, you see them outside of cafes and moms sitting inside drinking coffee. Um, and it's just, it's just normal. You walk around and you see babies sleeping in strollers all around society. For me, it also, this, this whole idea of, of that uh, connects to, like, trust issues and how trust is uh, so much more permeant in Nordic cultures than here. There's a story of the, the Danish woman in New York City, uh, first time in America with her infant. And she did the same thing as she's used to do in, in Copenhagen. So she went to a cafe with some of her friends, left the stroller outside the cafe uh, with the, the little baby in it. And she was arrested. People called the cops on her because, right? Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Ch child neglect. <laughs> like, child yeah. neglect. Right, of course, because that's, that's what an American would think because uh, you're just walking away from your baby. Someone's going to snatch it at the very least. And right. And in our mind, that is insane. Like, who want to steal a baby? They're really annoying. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of, lot of work. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. Like, why would you, why why would you, you want to do that? It's a, uh, it is, it is really, uh, when you start to think about little details like that, there's this huge gulfs in the way we think about things. And you see the way that a sort of um, underlying cultural assumptions is the way that you th you've been raised to think of certain issues. <clears throat> Yeah, so one of the things that I think about with the visibility of children in society is, is that for Americans, there is a real fear of baby snatchers and of the terrible crimes that humans can do to each other because there have been very awful crimes committed in the past mm -hmm. in the States that led to putting missing children on milk cartons mm -hmm, in order mm -hmm, to try yeah. to find them. I was just going to say, I know that issue very well because growing up, up in Minnesota, this boy like my age named Jacob Wetterling was like abducted and disappeared like in a rural Minnesota town in like 1983 or 1984 or something like that. I was like 10, 12 years old at the time. You know, so I remember that was like covered heavily and so it was like gone. No one, they didn't solve the crime and so forth. And just then maybe five, six years ago, one of the suspects was finally arrested and they found some sort of remains or something. He led them to remains, I think, and then they were able to finally close the case and this this, this man was tried and found guilty or whatever. But, but um, you know, so the, the, you, this, those, those, like you say, milk cartons, like sensational cases of child abduction and, 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 and uh, mistreatment, cr crimes against children and so forth, it really does figure prominently in, in, in American society. And oftentimes we see it in the tabloids. And it's, it's so interesting because the crime statistics in Scandinavia is way, way lower than mm -hmm. in the United States, right? And then you've seen this huge wave of Scandinavian crime fiction with egregious, horrifying <laughs> acts of violence or murders and stuff. And then we have these investigators trying to figure it out in these like normally rather peaceful societies. Like do you do you have an idea where that come from comes from? So I've thought a lot a bit about a lot about it and it's one thing that I'm just like always surprised by. There's it's like hard to find a Scandinavian crime novel in which children aren't present. 
and oftentimes involved in the crimes uh, as, as victims or even sometimes perpetrators. Um, and I really started to notice it, I don't know, five, six years ago when I was talking to a woman I knew who was a crime writer and was kind of at the early part of her career and had gotten an agent and had these manuscripts she was trying to um, uh, get published with this agent. And she said that the agent had read one of the manuscripts and said, you know, there's a death of the chi- the death of a child at the beginning of the manuscript. You can just forget getting that published because no American publishers can be interested in that. Oh, so that, that was over here? That was in America? That's right. Yeah. 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 And I can just think of like three or four <laughs> Nordic novels, especially a couple Icelandic ones that begin with like... <laughs> One, there's one uh, Ursa Sigurdardotter novel that begins with like these <laughs> these twins being taken out to some you know fjell and like they <laughs> d- dig a grave and put them in some cellar you know and then they um, hard to imagine a worse story right, right. children interred mm-hmm. and left I mean it's like that's like the ultimate sort of um, horrifying notion for a child you know be separated from their parents or a parent to be separated from their child and know that kind of thing happened to begin a crime novel with something like that it's it's sort of perverse um, and yet it's everywhere and I yeah. and so I have I've, I've, I've tried to th- think about it and understand a bit more like where does that come from where on the one hand you have this sort of rich m- culture of child rearing and on the other hand you have this like these ideas and these novels and films that are very prominent about the abuse and harm of children. But yeah, it's a, a big question of why does Scandinavia have less crime? Because there's, there's a lot of factors that go into that. And I think certainly, you mentioned the welfare state mm-hmm. is one of those things that if you are offering social services, then you are able to treat people with mental health problems mm-hmm. and make sure that they have access to help. Mm-hmm. And this is just making me think about a recent approach in Iceland to dealing with alcoholism and drug abuse in teens. Mm -hmm. Because this used to be a a huge problem. In the 90s, they did a survey and found that 40% of of teens were abusing alcohol regularly and 20% were smoking every day. And so it was this huge national health crisis. And what are we going to do about this? And they tried a lot of different things. They, they started just by putting in more after-school programs. So let's get kids playing soccer after school. Let's offer free parenting classes to parents to tell them it's not just you need to have quality time, but you need to have a quantity of quality time that you need to keep your children home and spend time with them regularly. They started up rehab centers where, very importantly, they didn't say... Uh, It wasn't just come in and learn that drugs are bad. It was come in and what do you want to learn? Tell us any skill you want to learn, we will Mm -hmm. teach it to you. And so then rehab, you know, you have a program that's supposed to be three months and you have children that stay in it for five years because they're having fun and they're getting something useful out of it. They're building life skills. Uh, But then they also took the approach of setting a curfew for teenagers so that it wasn't legal for children to be on the street after 10 p.m. at night. And this has had great success in Iceland. They've gone from being one of the highest uh, teen alcohol abuse rates um, in the late 90s now to being one of the lowest in Europe. And so other European countries have tried adopting this, but 
not everyone has adopted the, the children curfew. This would be unthinkable in some other Scandinavian <laughs> countries. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that it, it raises another kind of category I think is really important in making those kind of cultural differentiations, like autonomy. Kids just have a ton of autonomy. And I, so in a way, like your example, what's happening there is that instead of parents fostering their children and telling them how to handle alcohol or whatever, the state is taking a role in their in the child rearing curfews, right? The parents aren't doing it. The, the state's going to do it. They, they, they're, they're, they're not entertained on the weekends or they're not entertained um, at night. Okay, we're going to come in with these, you know, programs that give them, you know, the opportunity to do these things. So you could argue that it's, the, it's really the mediation of the state in daily life that uh, plays the key role there, not the family. And I think that's that that's a, that's a pretty convincing argument. There's a lot of services that that do that kind of thing, and I think one of the outcomes of it is that kids have a lot more autonomy and a lot more kind of responsibility from an early age, and think of themselves as quasi adults and then adults, you know, even as early teens. A good exa- example: any major metropol- metro- metropolis in Scandinavia, if you could call them metropolises, are. Um, you just you look around. I mean, there's like ten year olds on the on the subway or on the bus or eight year olds, or whatever. And and it's not like no one would bat an eye. You know, it's just like that's the way you get around, and never and they they, they can do it too. Um, and that's not only about sort of a general set of assumptions about security for young people, but also about the sense of their autonomy. Right? They can do those things. They're ready to do those things, and 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 so forth. Like what you hear? Be sure to subscribe to Crossing North wherever you get your podcasts. Crossing North is sponsored by the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, and we need your help to grow our podcast. Consider donating to one of the many funds that help support the department's mission to discover, preserve, and transmit fundamental knowledge about the languages, literature, history, politics, and cultures of the Scandinavian, Nordic, and Baltic countries. A gift to the Friends of the Scandinavian Languages and Literature Fund will be especially helpful to production of Crossing North. Go to scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu. This reminds me of something that I, I teach in, in, in my class and talked about a few weeks ago in the Introduction to Scandinavia class. The, this idea of the, the Nordic states, the welfare state, trying to kind of set the standard for good child upbringing and having these ideas, not necessarily through like a curfew or laws, but trying to make it possible to make make it easier to make good choices than to make bad choices. Um, and it reminds me of, of like the, the Nordic forest kindergartens, for example, where there are no fences around the kindergarten and they are usually placed in forests. Um, and what you try to teach the kids from like two and a half years old is is uh, that they have a whole lot of freedom, but with that freedom comes responsibilities. That you know where you're allowed to go to, you know that you're not allowed to go to the pond without an adult. Like an interesting thing is that, that they're not even called like teachers mm-hmm. because the idea is not teaching. The, the, the idea is like child development and they're called pedagogues, right? And they, they're trained in child development and not necessarily, okay, so here's the alphabet, right? So they are, they're teaching the kids, you know, motor skills, how to use tools. The children are, are used to use, uh, they learn to use knives from like the age of three, not as a weapon, but as a tool. 
And I think that you can see that kind of culture and that kind of philosophy of early childhood education where you're you're not prepping them for school necessarily. What you're trying to teach them are like life skills. Um, and then when you're six in most of the Scandinavian countries, there is like a year where you, tr you transition from free learning, learning through play, into a more school setting, usually called kindergarten class, that you're in a year from your six to your seven, where you, where you learn some of those skills that you have in, in preschool, like it's even called preschool, right? Mm. It's 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 not in in Scandinavia. I mean, uh, one interesting kind of comparison again, coming back to this U.S. point of comparison, is that early childhood preschool, both at the policy level and I think in many parents' ways of thinking about it. The concern is with getting into the race, you know, get them reading, get them learning numbers, baby Einstein, you know, whatever it is, they need to be gotten ready for school because they're going to soon they're going to need to be able to learn to read and so forth. So that childhood isn't that space of creativity and learning, or if it is, and if it is about learning, it's about instrumental learning, right? You need to get, acquire this knowledge in order to get to the next place, in order to get to the next place. Even I feel like just my own reflections about my own my own kids you know when i was in kindergarten it was kind of like warehousing i think we took a nap you know and it was you know you're just you know it's basically socialization into the school and now like it's like the kids are learning to read you know they're like they're they're they're, they're it's an academic track already from this is the seattle public schools if i can offer a speculation it, it sounds like the the two different styles of education reflect economic anxieties that in the united states just the anxiety of, I need to do the best I can in school so that I can get a good paying job. Otherwise, I will end up with a low paying job and have a miserable life. Is there not the same anxiety in Scandinavia? There seems to be a higher sense of security uh, and security net under the, the students in Scandinavia because you definitely, you see it here. Right, the, the importance of getting into that good school, of having those uh, good good grades, um, and you see it in the students that we teach here at the university that they are they're so well trained in getting good grades, and, and they are very very good at going to school, uh, listening and taking notes and and going to exams. They're very well trained. I didn't get my the first grade I ever got was when I was 15. That does not happen to American students. And I, and I think that the, the focus on grades in the Nordic countries are also there, but the stakes are lower. Hmm. Why do you think the stakes are lower? I think one of the main reasons, for example, in high school or in gymnasium, as they're called in Scandinavia, there is no like standardized test to get into universities. You, there are universities or different topics that you want to study where you need to have a certain grade average to get into those. And, and that's, that's very competitive, but you can always get into the good universities and study some of the other things um, because universities are free. Um, and it's not like that there's our, all the universities in Scandinavia are, are good universities. They, we don't have like a, the world-class universities of America, but they're pretty close. Like mostly the top universities of the different Nordic countries are on the top 50 uh, university list. Um, that, that come out every year. So there, so, but you can always get in. You know, you can, all, you can take all the way through PhDs for free. 
right? Even you get stipends from the government to do it. So there's not the same pressure. Maybe if you want to get into one specific education, there, there is, but you, but you can still do it. One thing that I always think in, in thinking of that question too is that there's just such a, an array of credentializing, like that you, could, you, you, can, you, you can get a degree in many different areas, uh, technical education as well, and then with really high rates of union membership you know, in the 90s, um, if you have those credentials and you're a union member, you're, you can be assured of you'll make a living wage and with, with the supports of the state system, you don't have to worry about health care, you don't have to worry about retirement, you don't have to worry about costs of education for your children if you have them. There's a lot of different ways in which you get to a good place, you can have a reasonable salary and you can be assured the, the kind of anxieties that a lot of people care. What, what if I'm in a car accident and the other driver's poorly insured and the, these things happen? You know, th those sorts of you don't have those kinds of concerns because there's the, a, a, a set of a system that is that, that protects you from contingencies that might you know ruin you, so to speak. Obviously, in the United States, you can earn gazillions of dollars, and you can earn basically nothing. And if you earn nothing, you're on the street nowadays. And I think that sort of huge disparity between the, the, the top and the bottom, you just don't have that there to the same yeah. degree. The extremes are so much bigger here. And I think I have a good example of of, of this. Uh, in in the, the scanned 100 class that I taught this fall, uh, I had the, the 130 student meet about 75 uh, high school students from Denmark. And we were discussing these cultural differences. And one of the things I have them do is that they they have to make a top three of like, what do you have to achieve or have in your life to, as a stereotypical American or stereotypical Dane, see yourself as a success in life, right? And every single one of the Americans had money on that top three. And only about one in three of the Danes had money on that list. Um, and that, that was, that's interesting to discuss, right? That, that difference. But I, it's not surprising because it is so important for your sense of security in society um, to be, you know, to, to get that higher paying job, to move up the ladder, to have money so that your kids can go to school. So that if your mom gets cancer, you have money to, 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 to treat that in, in, the, in the family. And many of those um, fears um, don't exist in the mind of the young Danes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to have enough money to start a family yeah. in the United States. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good point, right? Because you know as a young Dane that if you get a kid, you get one year of maternity leave. Yeah. Whereas in the United States, you might not get one day. Yeah. Hmm. It's funny, I, I just was thinking of this example from a film that's a little bit outside our frame of reference, a, a film, I think, is it called Jericho, maybe? I can't, I, I think that's the wrong title, but hmm. in any event, she says to this drifter uh, in the film, you can't have love without money. And it's just like such a great line, you know, when you think of a kind of a late capitalist system. And that's what those, that, that's why the money matters in a sense, is that yeah. the things that you really care about, love, you know, people you care about, um, being time. able to time, being able to care for others, you need money to do it. And, and, and that's just the reality in, in American society. And I think that 
um, that's a different reality in those Nordic societies just because of the system that they built. It's changing. Many people care about money just as much. There's rich people there too. Right. Um, but but I think that in, in the like for the median citizen, there's a kind of a security and a sense that I can do the things in life that matter to me, my life projects, without it all depending on how much money I have. Right. One of the points that is, is often made also in, in, in like political discussions about Nordic countries is that they like, oh, look at those, those socialist societies. And I, I don't think that's true. You know, the, the Nordic societies are definitely capitalist societies, but there's a different underlying value system system uh, under, under most of the things where, for example, family is valued. Like most of Scandinavia shuts down for three weeks during the summer because almost everybody has five or six weeks um, vacation from their jobs, right? And they have it at the same time, both mom and dad, so that they can go vacation with their children. And there are multiple policies like this put in place to try and prioritize family because, you know, people who are happy in life make better workers. Yeah, I mean, that's the... uh what Christian just said, that's sort of like the dirty secret in a sense of the, the welfare state too. It's an economic model yeah. as well. People need to be happy to work. We need to construct a system that maximizes productivity for these small populations, enhances reproduction so that we have enough workers for the future and so forth. So that there is a kind of a economic sort of centralized planning mechanism there that has been maintained for almost a century that is about economic productivity. Right. So I think that a lot of times when we think of the welfare state, especially in the United States, it's like a moral argument that this is the right way to do it or this is the humane way to do it. And that, that's a good argument. I don't, I don't mean to take away from it, but I think that the way things operate, there is a very, they're not socialist systems. They're very strong integration into the global economy. And as anywhere else, the big banks, the big corporations have enormous influence on decision-making and policy, and it would be uh, a mistake to think otherwise. So um, it, 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 it's an error to think of them as socialists. They're not. They're, they're, they're full market economies in every way. But as Christian says, the, the, state, the state's mediation of everyday life is very different there, and I think our conversation shows the way in which it, it shows up in every, everyday, everyday life, from children to decisions about universities and so forth. And you've studied um, Finnish school systems, uh, and they're regarded as, if not the best, then one of the best in, in the world. Uh, is that not through competition, or how, what makes the Finnish school so good? Well, I mean, competition is certainly a part of it. Um, you know, uh, the Finns are, especially their their sports. They're very they're like a super competitive, <laughs> competitive uh, people and society in their in their way, no doubt about it. But I think the school system is um, one in which you know one of the main arguments about the quality of the schools is that they have emphasized the excellence in teacher training um, and <clears throat> set a high standard for admission to teachers training uh, programs, you know, education, masters of education programs. What happens then is that there's a sense of that kind of credentialing where you become a credentialed professional who's an expert in, in you know, pedagogy for young people. And as a result, there's a lot of autonomy. That's the, the kind of corollary, corollary to the argument. Uh, teachers have a lot of discretion in how they teach their classes. They don't have to follow a specific curriculum that's dictated by the school district. They don't have to, um, you know, there's not the standardized testing on an annual or, you know, even semi-annual um, basis that we have now in the United States. You know, thanks to No Child Left Behind, 
you know, of, of George W. Bush. What about funding? Highly funded schools through both state appropriations and um, the way that the municipal system works so that it's not, for example, dependent on property tax as it is in the United States where you can have areas of great wealth and areas of relative poverty and, and then as a result, huge differences in the availability of resources to support schools. Um, you know, or for example, like a PTA, you know, that's just like an unheard of notion that that the parents would be paying to operate this association that would support teachers, you know, because they're underfunded and they can't afford supplies for their classes. I mean just <laughs> it's like it's like um, trying to write an email with a typewriter. You know, it just doesn't make doesn't make sense. There's just such different systems. The sort of the you know help yourself mentality of American society that comes in many ways from a lack of support in various areas. And I think that the funding picture um, is a big is a big part of that. The correlation between underfunded schools and race in the United States is like just a national disgrace. I mean, it's just like no other way to put it. And like it's history, obviously going back to. Um, Jim Crow and slavery and racism and racist policies and in um, the the northern part of the United States or like the south. I'm not just pointing my finger at the south, but you know it makes you think that in the United States, as much as there's like this emphasis on producing winners, there's also a hell of a lot of effort on producing losers. Right? The the, the withholding of resources from parts of the society, you know, produces people without the opportunities for success. Yeah, I think I think those are very good points, and I just talked to my students about this, like how how studying different cultures gives you a new set of lenses to look at your own society with. And one of the things we've discussed is the the, the British Prime Minister a few years ago, five or six years ago, in a in a public speech said, you know, if you want the American dream, go to Finland, right? Because in in Finland, the the upward social mobility is so much higher than it is in the United States. If you're born in the, the lowest class in, Amer- in America, your risk of staying there is twice as big as if you were born in the lowest class in Finland. And, and that is very much you know, through the welfare state. This idea of the welfare state trying to make the individual mm-hmm. uh, free of the bonds of the mm-hmm. family, yeah. of where yeah. they're born, yeah. and, and trying to level the playing field for yeah. every single yeah. Uh, child. Yeah. It's interesting. I just heard a, a summary report of a much bigger uh, study of American society in that, uh, around this question of uh, social mobility. You know, it varies from city to city, where in some cities there's relative opportunity to rise, like 14% of people who are born in the lowest quartile of Americans of, of that particular city make it up to like the second or, or the second highest or highest quartal. Um, in, but then the, I, the, what was especially interesting about the, this report was that then, but that varies quite a bit by zip code within cities, mm-hmm. you know, so that like what, even like looking at, at the pretty fine grain measure like of a city, it, it's about even blocks, certain, you know, like, because, and of course that's about the history of segregation in American cities and the history of schools and so forth. Um, but it really tells you that just like how sort of the kind of mosaic of American society in, in, in its modes of exclusion and inclusion and paths to paths up and paths that are blocked forever. You know, I think that's just like not the way it works there to the same degree. Of course, there's rich people with advantages there and poor people who don't have as many advantages and, and, and correlations with various social harms and so forth. But I, just as an anecdote, I remember um, 
when when I was trying to get our, our daughter in preschool, I was like, you know, it's like a assignment by 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 where you live, and then you apply, and you're you're supposed to go to like the one that's close, the, o- the closest one that's open where you can get a slot. And so then I was like asking my these people I knew and my friends like, oh, is this a good one? Is that a good one? What do you think? You know, that's the conversation among parents in the United States. They're like, oh, they're all the same. Yeah, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. You know, like it was like didn't make sense to them that you would be trying to like work the angles to get find the good one. You know, because there there's like a sense of universality, like Christian was saying, a- equity of resource distribution is a very important principle, like that notion of of, of fairness. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it just you know that's just like the. The history of the United States is full of, you know, brutality and, you know, the genocide of Native peoples and, uh, you know, slavery. Just like it's a, a horror show, and that's with us today. And I think that we we do a disservice to our the, the national history to not emphasize the importance of those those aspects of American history in our current day and the way that it continues to um, create different opportunities and and. You just have to fight every day to make, make to make make a positive difference, and and I I hope that learning some things from the Nordic countries might help us do that. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. Special thanks to visiting lecturer of Danish, Christian Nesbø. Today's music was used with permission by Christian Hranar Paulsson. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about the podcast and other exciting projects hosted by the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a class or declaring a major. Professor Andrew Nestingen teaches a course called The Child and the School in Scandinavia, as well as courses on crime fiction and cinema. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu.